We are in the book of Jude tonight. We will be in the book of Jude until we knock out these 25 verses. We're doing two verses tonight, so you can run the math of how long that takes us. I'll just give you the bottom line up front. These first two verses, the salutation that Jude gives, he is trying to communicate that we are, as believers, secure in Christ. Okay, that's going to be the overarching theme that will hopefully become very apparent. Jude comes to the very end of the Bible, it's number 65, uh, right before Revelation. Jude chapter, Jude 1, 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Pause. We read this and one of the first questions that begs to be answered is, who is this man, Jude? Who is he? The New Testament, it lists eight different individuals by the name of Judas. Judas, the English variation of the Greek, Judas, of the Hebrew, Judah. So English, we have Jude, Greek, we have Judas, Hebrew, we have Judah. A lot of people named Jude in the first century. It was a popular name. I guess you named all the cool kids Jude. Kind of like today, you might name him Joe. <laughs> when I practiced that, I wasn't sure if you guys were going to laugh or not. So, thank you. So Jude is, uh, is writing this story. And of course, the question is, well, which Jude? John Calvin, the great Bible teacher... He believed, he had a theory, that it was Jude the Apostle. Jude, one of the twelve. The only problem with that was that Jude was the son, not the brother, of a man named James. So he says that he's the brother of a man named James. Not a lot of detail there, which leads many Bible teachers and scholars to say, well, there was really only one guy named James at this point that he could have just said James and expected them to know who he was talking about. Only one person that had that type of standing in the first century church, and that would have been James, who wrote the book of James. James, who was Jesus' half-brother. James, who was the pastor at the church of Jerusalem. Therefore, the Jude writing this, whose brother is James, is also a half-brother of Jesus who's writing this story for us. Other than that, history is kind of silent as far as the identity of this man. And so, he says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James. Like his brothers, Jude, James, one thing they had in common was none of them actually believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be until after the resurrection. The guy writing this, he didn't buy into the story that Jesus was God until post-resurrection. That, and we place the time and dating for this sometime around 68 and 70 AD. Sometime between Peter's death and the Roman siege and destruction of Jerusalem. You might find it interesting, but 19 of these 25 verses you can actually find parallels in 2 Peter, which leads many people to believe that Jude actually serves as somewhat of a sequel to 2 Peter, where Peter writes in a future tense of false teachers who are going to infiltrate and attack the church. Jude, you find him using present tense indicators. Peter says, hey, they're coming, watch out. Jude says, hey, they're here now. 
And so he says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. I want to stop right there. Let's unpack that for a second. Your Bible might say servant. It might say bondservant. I'm not a language expert, but the Greek word is doulos. And I remember when John MacArthur came to convocation, I think my last year in seminary, maybe my second to last year in seminary, uh, he talked about this word doulos, which means slave, almost on, on most occasions, when you see the word servant or bondservant used, the majority of the time, it's the word slave. However, when the editors get together and edit our English Bibles, due to cultural negative stereotypes in our culture, especially with issues of slavery, they make the decision to, I don't know if you would say pacify, but soften it. And you, So we see the word servant and, and bondservant, but almost on the majority of those occasions, it's the word slave. If you want more information, John MacArthur has a book called Slave. And so Jude says, as Jesus' half-brother, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. This is not so much a term of humility... He's not coming here and saying, I'm just a nobody. But rather, it's an indication that in, his, that, it, that in his eyes and their eyes, the eyes of his readers, that their status, that their security does not come from themselves, but it comes from someone else. It comes from the one whom they belong to. And yet, for many of us, our status and our security, it's not defined by the one whom we belong to. It's not. Or, it is, but only partially. And if it is partially, it's the smaller part. Because for many of us, quite frankly, our status and our security is based on having a relationship. Is based on our good looks. Is based on our athletic ability. Is based on our GPA. Is based on... Our job, how much money we make. For many of us, we aren't able to relate and understand the thing that Jude is trying to express here and saying here. And I'll be clear, he's not trying to communicate some type of self-esteem message of humility. Like he's not saying, I'm a slave and I'm super humble. Okay. He's, not, he's not trying to Christianize or spiritualize this message and tell you that it's okay that I have a, such a lowly status as a slave because after all, I'm famous in my father's eyes. That, that's not the message or the song that he's trying to communicate here. That's not it at all. In fact, what he's trying to communicate has nothing to do with the fact that he's a slave. And it has everything to do with who the owner of the slave is. Of course, this fits well with what we know of first century Roman culture. In which highly placed imperial slaves had tremendous authority. Not because of who they were. 
but because of who they represented. The master, the emperor, Caesar. See, technically, they held the rank of really a social zero, you might say. But because of whose slaves they were, they were to be treated with respect for to disregard Caesar's slaves doing Caesar's business was to disregard the emperor himself. And so what we see is Jude in this real quiet, real subtle way is going to play on this cultural stereotype and kind of draw you in. I mean, his readers would have been really clear to his readers and to indicate that his authority comes from the one whom he represents. His status, his security in this world, it's not based on who he knows. It's not based on his job, on his good looks, on that relationship that he either does or doesn't have. It's based on who his owner is, that being Jesus Christ. He's a slave of Christ. And I pause there and I say, Are you like him? Are you like him? Or does your status and your security in this world, does it come from things other than Jesus? We'll jump to the next line. To those who are called. Stop. To those who are called. This is describing believers. Okay, He is writing to believers. He wants them to understand that their status and security. These first two verses. Remember, here's the overarching theme. Their status, their security is based in who owns them. Jesus. And so he says, to those who are called, he's referring to believers. And I really want to clarify this. Because I'm sure in here, there are many people who are in here right now. And you think, yep, 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 I'm agree. Oh, to those who are called, describing believers. Okay, this is me. When in reality, it's not you at all. And you think because you made a decision for Christ... That you're a Christian. I, I, I got to pause here, okay? I got to put the landing gear down before we start unpacking this. I meet people all the time, and they say, Yeah, I made a decision for Jesus. And, and I'll, I'll be clear if you've made a decision for Jesus, but you don't have any delight or joy in Jesus, you might not be a Christian. You might just know facts about him. John Piper says, when you look at him, what do you see? Is he boring? Do you just see all these Sunday school answers that you've been told? That's how it is? Or when you see him, is he breathtaking? Is he amazing? Is he marvelous? Is he satisfying? Is he all enjoyable? Is he all glorious? I see many people are under this impression that, well, I made a decision for him, therefore I am saved. And that's part of, you know, this American, just do it, just willpower, just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps mentality. I.e., I can make it happen, I can do it. And so this American culture that we live in, right? 
I'm an army officer, right? And I, you know, hey, I'm, this is the best army the world has ever seen. And there's a sense of pride and accomplishment. And the problem is, you know, you go to a youth event. You go to a youth event. The pastor preaches a sermon. And he yells. People cry, the usual. And then we say, oh, 80 people got saved. And I'm thinking, hold on a second. How do you know? 80 people made a decision for God. Praise God. But to say 80 people got saved, and we do it all the time as Protestants, like in this very papal-like Vatican way. We say, oh, you're saved. You made a decision for Christ. You're saved. And no one says, do you have, is he your treasure? Is he your treasure? Are you able to say with Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain? Are you able to say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Now you made a decision. What type of soil are they planted in? What type of soil are they planted in? I'll illustrate this. It deserves an illustration. There was a sower who went out into a field to sow. He sowed some seed. Some seed falls among the good soil. Some falls among the rocks and the thorns. And it says that the seed that fell among the rocks and the thorns, it was eventually choked out. Two different reasons, explanations in the parable of the sower. One is because the joys and cares of this world pulled that individual away. And because the trials and difficulties pulled them away. And they were never able to make root. And yet it also says when they first heard the gospel, they accepted it with great Joy, enthusiasm, and vigor, right? They made a decision. Like my roommate Dallas, freshman year, 10 years ago. I'm over in dorm 5-2, which now lays under Commons 1. And I'm coming every single day, and there's Dallas reading his Bible. And we're going to church together. But then things get kind of choppy. Things get kind of hard. His girlfriend breaks up with him. It doesn't play out the way he was hoping that relationship would. And so he begins to drift farther and farther and farther away. And now today, he just says, I was brainwashed. That was just, I got caught up in the emotion. And yet we do that all the time. I need you to understand that just because you made a decision for Christ doesn't necessarily mean you're a Christian. Just because you prayed some prayer and asked Jesus to come into your heart doesn't necessarily mean you're a Christian. It doesn't. You say, well, give me some type, of, like, some type of measurement, like I said, the whole time. When you look at Jesus, is he boring? Yeah, Sunday school facts. Yep, I believe that, believe that, believe that. Yeah, well, so does Satan. His problem is not theological. I've heard Piper say this a ton. He says, surely the devil thinks more true thoughts about God in a day than any of us will in a lifetime. The issue is not his theological or biblical understanding. The issue is... His joy, his delight, his treasure. It's very possible to make a decision for Jesus and have zero affections for him. He's writing to people who are called. I just thought I'd clarify that before I get all these north-souths like, oh, yep, that's me. Because I would rather make you feel a little awkward. I would rather make you think for a second. Like, use, use your brain than to give you a false hope. Than for you to walk out these doors thinking, yep, I'm a Christian in reality. You have a decision for Jesus and you don't delight in him at all. 
This is boring information. The fact that you're here tonight is because someone dragged you or because you, know, you need to tell your mom and dad that you went to church and check that box. And so he says, to those who are called, he's writing to believers, he's describing believers. Like even in the English translation, it suggests this idea of being personally chosen. To those who are called. And he's speaking of God's special internal call in which he awakens the human will. He awakens the human will. Jesus says in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Father's got to draw you. Or you can't come to me. Or you can come to me like your roommate Dallas did. You can come to me like at church camp in that heightened emotional state and make that decision. But you can't come to me in a saving way unless the Father draws you. To those who are called. And the Lord awakens our human will, our state of spiritual deadness. And Paul knew this better than anyone. You think of Paul's story for a second. Here's a guy who's not looking for Jesus. He's not interested, okay? He's not seeker-friendly. He's not, oh, they're having a cookout? Yeah, I'll come tonight. That's not Paul. Paul is, I want some heads. I want some Christians. I want them dead or imprisoned. He's not interested. Which is no wonder why in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, he says, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. No one understands God. He's quoting the psalmist. Which is why in Romans 8, 7, he says that our will is opposed to God and we are actually unable, submit, unable to submit. We're unable to submit to God's law. And, oh, by the way, we're also enemies of God, Romans 5.10. Oh, by the way, we also hate God, Romans 1.30. This guy knew it better than anything, right? Which is why in 2 Corinthians chapter 4.4, 4, he says that Satan, the God of the world, has blinded us. Like, we're spiritually blind. Like, he's trying to convey this sense of inability. Ephesians chapter 2.1-5, you're spiritually dead, right? And yet we're constantly this American mentality. You can do it. Pull yourself up from the bootstraps. Make that decision. We can do it. And it totally obliterates this little thing called grace, right? Like the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is essentially, you suck. You can't do anything right. Jesus comes and cleans you up. I mean, all other religions, for the most part, it's you've got to do something. You've got to meet some condition. And so these believers are called. God comes and awakes. The deadness in us changes us. And like I said, Paul knew best. He's on the road to Damascus. He's on a hunting mission, okay, for Christians to imprison them, to kill them if necessary. And what happens, right? I mean, God, I mean, God this is not what happens. God's not standing there saying, hey, Paul, do I have your permission to save you now? Nope, not yet. Hey, can I, can I save you now? Nope. Hey, can I save you now? He gets kicked off his horse. And he says, why are you persecuting me? And his life has changed. Supernaturally. Created from the inside out. 
Like, that's why he later on wrote 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. How does that happen? There's no amount of human engineering that can make that happen. God can make that happen. And it might take a lot of conversations. It might take a lot of sharing the gospel with your friends again and again and again and having them come to church and having them hear it, this message again and again and again and then in a moment it clicks. In a moment it makes sense. In a moment the blindness is revealed. I love the, this Matt Chandler quote in commenting. You guys might know Matt Chandler. He came and spoke at uh, Convo last, uh, last year. Great quote on this, this being called passage. He says, God doesn't save you. God doesn't save you because you give him permission. God saves you because he's God. He doesn't save you because you give him permission. He saves you because he's God. That's grace, right? That's the gospel. I'm going to clean you up. You can't do anything. I'm going to save you because I love you. And so you're called. Remember what, remember what Jude's trying to do, the overarching theme here. He wants them to know that their status is in who owns them and that they are secure in him. And he tells them, you're called. You're called. And oh, by the way, you're not just called, but you're beloved. You're beloved. This word in the original language, and I'm no expert on it, but in the original language, this word beloved, it conveys this idea that God has placed his love on believers. The interesting thing is, it's not just in the present moment. That God has placed his love on believers, not just in the present, but on eternity past, extenuating on to eternity future. Let me tell you a story to clear this up. I, uh, I got back. I was serving three months as operational support um, out at Fort Knox this summer. I don't know if I mentioned I'm an Army chaplain. And uh, serving as operational support to the largest Army training mission uh, every year that goes on there at Fort Knox. About 12,000 personnel roll through. And uh, my role was I was, I was training uh, soon-to-be chaplains. And I'm talking to my buddy Tim McMeans, kind of like my older brother type, 44. And uh, I was, you know, we're just making small talk. And I was like, Tim, when did, uh, tell me, when did Jesus save you? I just wanted to hear his story. And he wasn't being funny at all. He just looked me square in the eye and he said, Joe, Jesus saved me before the foundations of the world. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 4 to 6. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Do you not know that the love that our great God and King has for you, it didn't start today, it didn't start this year, it started before the foundations of the world that you, who he has called, you're a son and daughter of the King of the universe. You are beloved. I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, God loves you. It's another to say, hey, do you not know before the foundations of the world, he loved you. I mean, I can say, hey, I love you. I can say, hey, I love you. It's another thing to say, I loved you before the foundations of the world, and I also love you in this present moment, and I will continue to love you into the future. 
That is a love that is unmatched by anyone. You're beloved. And also, you're kept for. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Kept for, uh, in the original language, it conveys this idea to, to keep under guard, to, to, um, to pay attention to. This is what we at Lynchburg City Church, we would refer to as perseverance of the saints. You might know it as once saved, always saved. People come to me and they say, Joe, can I lose my salvation? It's a real thing that people struggle with, right? And some of you, you struggle with this over the summer. Like, you're battling sin, you're fighting sin, and Satan, there he is, he's lying to you. You're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. You don't love God. Trying to lie to you, throwing his darts at you, trying to attack you. And this is a real struggle, not just for the believers here in the first century. And so Jude wants to remove any fear from them. He wants them to know that they're secure. So my answer usually when I talk to people, they say, can I lose my salvation? I say, well, I guess that really depends on what you believe. I say, what was the, I said, tell me about your, tell me about salvation. I said, did you do it or did God do it? Well, God did it. It's God's grace. Grace is him doing for me what I, I, I can't do for myself, I, but, but I don't deserve, right? That's, that's grace, okay. So, so God, God's the one that made your salvation possible, made your salvation happen, okay. Jonah 2.9 says salvation belongs to the Lord. So my short answer is you can't lose something that doesn't belong to you. Salvation is from God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. As Jesus says in John 10, I and the Father am one, and no one can pluck them out of my hand. You're kept for. You're under guard. You're secure. I mean, imagine if I mean, we had SEAL Team 6 in here right now. We've got you know, 30, you know, 30 SEALs in here, you know, fully armed. You'd feel pretty secure. You're like, yeah, uh, uh, yep, we're, we're not going anywhere. No one's going to touch us. The God of the universe has kept you for himself. He watches you. He protects you. No one, no force on earth or outside of this earth can remove that, can change that, can alter that. And yet I know for many of you that's a struggle. As you battle sin, that you try to live out your Christian life, am I really saved? Some of you, those are thoughts maybe you had this week. And so he goes on and he says this. Verse 2, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Jude begins his letter by removing needless fear. Fear that keeps believers from living out their Christian lives. This is the tone that he wants to set, that they are secure in Christ. And because of that, because of the things we just talked about, because, oh, by the way, you're called, oh, by the way, you're beloved, oh, by the way, you're kept for, you can really experience mercy, peace, and love. For those of you who love Jesus, for those of you who know Jesus, for those of you who have been purchased by Jesus, you're kept for Jesus Real issues that faced these people. And yet some of you today, maybe you're really encouraged. You're like, I'm really glad you said that. 
and yet some of you are like, I'm not sure if I'm in that group of his readers. I might be in the group of that roommate of yours. I might be in the group of the seeds sown among the thorns and the rocks. And the question is, is what am I doing? What do I do? And my first thing is, that's the, that's the wrong question to ask. And the message of the gospel, you don't do anything. He saves you. Yeah, you, you place your faith in Jesus in this gospel message. Yes, you repent of your sins. Okay? You turn from your sins. I can tell you all of these things. You can do all those things and you can still not have a heart desire for Jesus. And I, I mean, I, I do this every day. God, give me a hunger and thirst for you. God, give me a desire for you. God, I want to love you. I want to love you. I want to love your word. When I open this book, I don't want it just to be words on a page, God. I, I want to just be thrilled by it. I don't want to love these people around me. Even the ones that are so hard to love sometimes. I want to love them. I want to have these desires. You're the one, Jesus. You say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Jesus, satisfy me. Jesus, awake these emotions. Connect this disconnect between my head, which totally is affirming everything that Joe's saying right now. And my heart, which just feels empty. Like I'm in this room and there's no emotions, there's no feelings. When I look at you, it's just boring. Oh, that it might not be boring. And I would tell you right now, pray. Pray right now to him. God, give me, the, give me a joy for you. That I can say with the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Gain. Why would it be gain? Because you get more of Jesus. And yet, if you've never experienced him in that way, it's really hard to say, I enjoy Jesus. You can say, I enjoy my girlfriend. I enjoy my, my boyfriend. I enjoy this TV show. I enjoy this movie. I enjoy Jesus. Uh, I don't know. I can't make that happen in you. You can't make that happen in yourself. But he can make that happen. I mean, he spoke the world into existence. I think he can change desires in you. The band's going to come. And I'll tell you, um, if you need to talk to me afterwards, maybe that's you. You want me to just pray for you? I'd love to pray for you. The band's going to come, and we're going to take communion. And we do do communion a little different here. Um, If you're a Christian, you can be visiting here for the first time. You're welcome to take communion. If you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you continue to repent of your sins, you can come and we'll serve you the bread and the grape juice and we'll pray for you. Um, but it is for Christians. And not only that, I would, I would caution each and every one of you in light of 1 Corinthians 11. And I always do this because God killed some of those people because they took communion in an unworthy manner. So don't be in a rush. When you're ready, you come. Examine yourselves first. But when you're ready, you come. God, we love you. We worship you. We praise you. I pray for those of us in here right now that struggle with doubt. Are we saved? Are we really secure? That struggle with our status in this world and fight against what the world says our status and our security should be. I pray for those people that they would just just absorb Jude's words. And they would have a confidence in a, in a new direction. And for those in here, God, 
who maybe they came in here tonight and they thought they were called, they already thought they were beloved, they already thought they were kept for you, and now they're maybe wondering, maybe all I have is a decision for you, and, and that's it. It's empty. I pray that you would awaken them a love for you, that you would be their greatest treasure. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.